In fact, that's where I wanted to pick it up today. Frank talked about grace last week. And uh, I wanted to pick up, not where he left off exactly, but maybe to expand, not to correct, to expand. You know, there was nothing to correct. He did a masterful job, I think, at helping us to break down the resistance, the natural resistance to grace, the difficulty that we have with, with uh, engaging with and embracing grace. Um, this concept of grace is so hard for us, and he defined it, you know, the classic way, unmerited favor, unconditional love, with the emphasis on unmerited, <laughs> with the emphasis on unconditional, because that's the whole point, isn't it? If we can earn it, then it's not grace. Grace is absolutely dependent on this idea that there's nothing that we can do to gain it, to earn it. All we can do is accept it. But why is that so hard? That was the whole point. You know, this is a huge central concept in our faith. It's a critical concept in our faith. If we don't get this, we don't get the gospel. We don't get kingdom. We, nothing goes forward if we cannot accept that there is a love that we just have because we're sitting here breathing and for absolutely no other reason. Why is this so hard? Why is it so difficult? Frank talked about the, uh, the trip from the head to the heart, that 18 inches that is so difficult for us to traverse by the longest journey we'll ever take, I think is the way the original quote goes. And it's so true. I mean, we can all say that we know that God is love. We can say that God loves us. We can say that God's love is unconditional. We can talk about grace. We can understand the concepts perfectly. But that's not what's driving the bus, is it? Our heads. What's driving the bus is much deeper than that. And we will find ourselves living and working contrary to everything that we say we know about grace and everything that we say we know about God's unconditional love. And... I have a friend, just last week we were talking, and uh, he is someone who knows how much God loves him, you know? He, he, he's, he's, he's praying all the time, and he's, he's just one of, one of the most um, devoted men to his faith that I know. And we, as we were talking, he said, you know, how do we really know that we're absolutely forgiven? What if there's some sin way back there that we forgot about, you know? See how insidious it is. Even what we say we know, and even as much as we've been steeped in, there's still that feeling, there's still that, yeah, but is it really true? Am I really good enough? You know, have I passed the bar? Does God really approve and accept me? Yeah, it's, it's amazing how even in the face of everything we think we know, we still end up counting sins, don't we? It's kind of like stacking poker chips. Do we have enough, you know? Can we bet this one? Can we do this? But we go right back into that mentality again. And it's like a seesaw. Some days we're moving out and we're feeling pretty confident and pretty convinced. And then other days it kind of recedes into the background and the fear takes over again. Whenever I have talked to someone and talked to myself about this, I've approached it from a legal aspect in terms of trying to remodel God's relationship with us. Because as soon as any part of us starts to look at God's relationship from a legal perspective, we're cooked. We're done. It's over. 
If we look at God's love from the point of law, as if following the law, being obedient to the law, can in any way gain us God's approval, or is it prerequisite to God's approval, then we're right back on the hamster wheel. A look at God's love through a legal lens kills grace, absolutely kills grace. Because as soon as God's love is earned through the law, then it's not grace anymore. It's something completely different. And the second thing that it does besides killing grace, absolutely, what we experience is being put back on a continuum. And this is the aspect that I wanted to take a look at this morning. I think I've beat the horse on the legal aspect enough over the years. But why is the legal aspect so damaging to our sense of God's love for us and the relationship that we have for him? Why does it kill trust in the way that it does, kill conviction in the way that it does? It's because it puts us back on a continuum. And this is something that we need to talk about just a little bit. Have you ever heard of continuum thinking? It's a thing out there. It's, It's an actual deal. Continuum thinking is a way of thinking that is opposed and, you know, kind of diametrically opposed to categorical thinking. Categorical thinking is the thinking that we kind of normally do. It's kind of a all or nothing, either or type of way of looking at things versus a continuous. Maybe you can think of it in terms of the difference between digital and analog, if that helps you. You know, digital is decree, uh, discrete samples, and the analog is the way I'm not, not getting, this is not happen, happen, helping, is it? You know, Think of a particle versus the wave, individual particles, discrete things. I see a couple of you know what I'm talking about. See, the rest of you, I don't know. Do we put things in boxes? Do we put things in categories? Do we see life as being the way that we process our information, the way that we bring that in and and deal with it on a daily basis? Do we put things in neat boxes and categories? That's very efficient. It's very easy to do that. Or do we see it as a continuous wave, a spectrum? There's a difference between the two. Remember when we talked about good and evil? Here's maybe uh, an example that will, will bring it into focus. When we in the West think of good and evil, we think of it categorically. We think of it as two separate elements that are diametrically opposed to each other, possibly in some kind of cosmic warfare with each other, but completely separate and mutually exclusive. That would be a category and a categorical way of thinking. But when we put it into Aramaic, Taba and Bisha literally mean ripe and unripe. To that ancient mind, something that was good was ripe. It was able to nourish. It was able to preserve life. And something that was evil was not. But basically, it was a difference between immaturity and maturity, from being ready to fulfill your purpose and not being ready. It's a continuum rather than discrete categories. And it's so helpful for us to now think of good and evil in a continuum because now we can see how God sees us. Not that we're bad, not that there's there's chasm between us that's impenetrable, but that we're just not ready for prime time yet. We are still on our way. We are still becoming. We are still maturing. All of those things. So that's a difference between a categorical thought or a concept 
and a continuum concept. Uh, there's a little article. I want to read just a, a part of it and see if this starts to bring it home because this is going to be important for us to understand. If we can get off the continuum, it's going to help us in terms of grace. He writes, many dimensions that we consider on a daily basis can be looked at in one of two ways. On the regular, everyday level, dimensions may seem dichotomous. And that we would, that's, that's mutually exclusive. We might say dualistic, right, in, in separate boxes, or categorical. But upon closer consideration, they are often actually continuous. Conceptualizing differences in properties as clustered into categories or as spread out along a full continuum may have implications for the expectations we form and the judgments we make. Can we capture our differences among people without falling into the pitfalls of categorization? Categorization often leads to exaggerating differences between groups and minimizing differences within groups, resulting in stereotyping, bias, and prejudice. Do you see how when we put people into box based on obvious and, and, and first impression uh, attributes that we create these categories that just stick with us and then they harden into stereotypes, harden into bias, harden into prejudice. One sorely needed change <coughs> in our culture is a shift into continuum thinking. Either or thinking can be fine at times. It highlights differences which can be very appropriate and useful. Continuum thinking is often better at reflecting a complex reality. It highlights our commonalities, giving us a sense of being in the same boat. And it is often better at bringing attention where it really belongs, our choices and actions, and not an abstract and imagined identity. We get identity out of those categories that we create because we recreate them for ourselves. Remember when Jesus said, don't judge, because the method that you use, the standard you use is going to be applied to you, Hey, that's happening all the time. We put ourselves into these categories. That's what Frank was talking about. When we see ourselves as unworthy, that's a category. That's a box we put ourselves in. Based on some information we got somewhere, but it doesn't apply when we're talking about grace anymore. For instance, he says, I think of my eating habits as 98% vegetarian. So he's one of those, right? Come on, that's a joke. And perhaps 95% vegan. If I told myself I am vegetarian, whatever that means, it's easy to get into self-righteousness and us-versus-them thinking. Looking at it more accurately, as eating habits on a continuum, it brings attention where it belongs, on concrete activities and amounts. The point is to reduce the amount of meat eaten, for animal rights, ecological and health reasons, not to be one thing or another. Of what am I aware of, of what I am aware of in different spiritual or philosophical traditions, I find about 90% of Buddhism as useful pointers for attention and action. In Christianity, about 100% of the essence and much less of the traditions. In existentialism, maybe about 80%. In pragmatism, 90%, and so on. Here, too, it would be equally misleading to say that I am Buddhist or I am Christian. It misses the point. And it draws attention away from where it really belongs. Which guidelines I use for awareness and action. What the effects are. Whether I could use them in a more helpful way. Or find more helpful guidelines. In terms of politics, I land on different places in different continua. Often depending on the circumstances and the topic. 
How much of us are really just Democrat or Republican? You know, there are differences with all of us. We find ourselves in agreement with our party, in agreement with our party. Sometimes the opposite party, God forbid, might have an idea that actually makes sense. We find ourselves somewhere on a, on a continuum, on a spectrum, rather than just hard and fast. And the more that we see us as hard and fast, the less dialogue that we have between each other, which is part of what we're seeing in our communities right now. I am a certain percentage healthy and ill for a wide range of mental and physical illnesses, and this too changes over circumstances and time. For instance, my thoughts, emotions, and actions may be 20% manic-depressive on one scale, or my body may show signs of 10% of a certain cardiovascular problem. You know, this is something that, that has really struck me as I've been working in, in uh, healthcare and, and mental health uh, and counseling and, and recovery for so, as long as I have. These mental health diagnoses, whatever they happen to be, you know, if it's bipolar, if it's autistic, if it's um, borderline personality disorder, these are diagnoses that we tend to see as hard and fast categories, as if you either are this thing or you aren't this thing, as if there's some hard line that you are this thing or not. And you know, nothing could be further from the truth. It's on a continuum. Everybody is somewhere in the range of human possibility in terms of where we can be with our mental health. To call a, a child autistic, I mean, are they really just one thing? Or are they, like, seriously introverted? Maybe moving into what used to be called Asperger's, and then moving into what is sometimes called high-functioning autism, moving all the way over to the end of the scale where they cannot share reality with the rest of the world. I mean, it is a continuum. When is someone actually bipolar? When is someone actually borderline? I mean... The doctor is trying to find something that shows on a scale, but everything is that scale. Everything is that continuum. And then the medications that they prescribe, you know, it's as much art as science because they're trying to find something that works for that person on that particular point on the continuum. It's not just a hard and fast thing. And that's the problem, that we reduce life into those categories, into those simple boxes. And we do it for a reason. We put people... And everything into boxes, don't we? When we do it for quick recall, we experience something, we put it into a box. So that when we re-experience that thing, we can go to that thing really quickly and know how to handle that particular situation. That works really well. It's part of our survival technique. And we need to do that. What people are safe? What people are not safe? What person can I say something to? When can I not say something to a person? What's safe? What's not? You know, how, how do we navigate everything. We put them into boxes. But as soon as we do that, what happens? We're relating to the box and no longer the person anymore, are we? We only see the box. The person behind is obscured now. Carl Jung said something that's fascinating. He said, thinking is difficult. That's why so many people judge Think about that for a second. Thinking is difficult. That's why most people judge. We could say presence is difficult. That's why so much many of us judge. Judging is easier. One experience, you got a box. Done. 
You know, I don't have to think about that anymore. I don't have to deal with the person anymore. I just need to deal with the box. But what did Jesus say? He said, don't judge. What is he really saying? <laughs> don't think categorically. Right? You know, we only think of it in terms of condemnation, but it's really this categorical thinking. And it's not just about people. It's about our moments, too. I don't like this moment. Why? Well, because I didn't like a moment like it 20 years ago. So this moment must be terrible, too. You know, it's, it's, we do this to our moments. We do it to our circumstances. We do it to everything. And we do it to each other. Jesus is saying, don't think categorically. Don't use judging as your primary interface with people and your relationships in the world. Be present to each moment. Be present to each other. With every encounter, see the person again because it, it could revise your box. The box may need revising. You won't see that a person is growing. You won't give them the benefit of the work that they've been doing because they're in your box permanently, set in stone with a lock on it. When we're present, when we're really there, we will realize that no one fits neatly into boxes. Everyone is on some sort of continuum. Now, continuum thinking is really helpful for most of our human experience, especially when it's social and especially when it's relational, because it helps keep us more present. We can see people as moving along the, the spectrum, and we're looking to where they are on the spectrum. right? But when it comes to God's love, when it comes to God's grace, the continuum breaks down. Why? Because in God, everything goes to infinity. God stands outside the system that we use to measure anything. God stands outside any spectrum or continua that we could possibly imagine or create. In God, all temperature and velocity and love is infinite. Infinite. Infinite is an infinity. Where is there a continuum <laughs> that can describe something that's beyond any scale? beyond any spectrum, beyond any continuum that we can possibly imagine. Now, when we think of grace in legal terms, we're placing ourselves back on a continuum. We're always thinking of ourselves either lesser or greater, less worthy, more worthy in relation to God. Are we good enough, right? Is there some sin back there that maybe we've forgotten that if it was brought back up again, we would fall to a lower level. We're always thinking in these terms on a continuum. I know that I've told you the story before, but looking at it this way, that moment some um, 20 years ago on the back deck of our, of our condominium, and I was sitting there and I was doing exactly this. Now, I didn't think of it in terms of putting myself on the continuum, but I was thinking, you know what? I've been trying to follow God for 10 years now. And I'm still really neurotic. You know, what's going on? And I'm, but then I was thinking, okay, but I'm better at this, and I'm better at this, but, you know, this is still a problem. I was, what was I doing? I was looking at myself on the continuum. Where am I in relation to where God is or where God wants me to be, needs me to be, would approve of me if I were? And I was trying to put myself on that on that scale, trying to justify, trying to find something that made me feel a little bit better about the 10 years that I had spent so far. And then that 
moment where it wasn't an actual voice, but in my head, the words, if God's love is perfect, then God can't love me anymore. And God, God can't love me any less. And there's nothing I can do to make God love me anymore or make God love me any less. For that moment, at least that one shining moment, I popped off the continuum. And I heard something, and, and it, it made sense to me for the first time in a way that I had had in my head. But now it had made that transition, that 18-inch transition, into a place where it changed everything. Now, the next morning when I woke up, was I still there? No. But that was the beginning of a transformation. That was the beginning of a more and more, or deeper and deeper level of trust. To pop off that continuum, to see something in a completely different way. Grace isn't like anything else that you will encounter in life because it has no continuum. There's no category for it either. To approach grace is to step completely out of the continuum, completely out of any category, because you can't approach grace by thinking at all. We have to stop thinking if we want to really approach grace. That was something that was so hard for me to understand. Lately, I've been doing a heck of a lot more counseling, and uh, it's both for here and for a, a local hospital for their staff. And I find myself, I hear myself saying over and over again, more and more, that nothing changes if you just think about it. Nothing changes if you just talk about it. Things only change when you do something about it. When there is actual action that is different, action that is changed, then the change starts to take place. It's amazing how that just comes up over and over again. You can think all you want, but only action is going to change things. And not just any action, but action that you take that actually contains some risk to it. That you are risking something that is valuable to you in terms of the connection that you were trying to make. Frank brought up Brene Brown and read a bit of her, uh, her TED Talk on, on vulnerability. And it's so prescient. I mean, I read that maybe you know, 10 years ago, and it's, it's been a while since she did that TED Talk. And she was talking about the people in her research that had a good and connected relationship or relationships and in a, in a community, a support system, and those who didn't. And the difference between the two was, the dividing line between the two was shame. And she defined shame as the fear of disconnection. It's that sense that if people really knew me, uh, they wouldn't accept me. If they really knew me, you know, I'm just not good enough, I'm not pretty enough, I'm not smart enough, all those things that we put ourselves on the continuum for, right? I'm this, I'm this, but I'm not that, I'm not good enough. That's the shame. Shame is continuum thinking, or shame is emotional continua, if you want to look at it that way, because we're not even thinking these things rationally, usually. And she said the ones that had good connection the thing that, that defined them was that they believed that they were worthy of the connection and for no other reason. They just knew that they were worthy of the connection, therefore they could have it. And so the question, of course, has to be, how do we know that we're worthy? How can we possibly know that? Because if we try to earn it, we're back on the continuum. And there is no end to that journey. 
Does that mean that we can say maybe affirmations in the mirror? You look at yourself in the mirror and say, I am worthy, I am worthy. You know, I hear these things, uh, you know, from people. And, you know, it's not that there's no value in that. If you continuing to say the affirmations to yourself helps you to be able to move, to be able to act in a risky direction, a direction that feels risky to you because you're not sure that you're going to be accepted, then there's something valuable in that. But the point is, until you move, until you risk something in the direction of connection, then the conviction still won't be yours. There's nothing we can talk ourselves into. A couple weeks, I think it was the week before Frank spoke, um, my message contained the story of Michelle Macheski, our, our, uh, our member here who is now in Pennsylvania, who was diagnosed you know, just recently and without any kind of warning that she had stage four pancreatic cancer and, and only has weeks or months to live. And she went back to, uh, to stay with her twin sister in Pennsylvania. And she described the household as uh, you know, just being so connected. And the image that stayed with me is that her twin sister wanted to sleep with her in bed every night so that she didn't miss a single moment with her sister that she had left, not even the moment of her death. And, and the, the picture that was painted for me by Michelle of the way her family is just connected with her and all around her. A friend of mine who saw it, he's in Vermont himself, but his, he said, you know, I, I, my main takeaway for the whole message was just, wow, the love of that family. I don't think he heard another word I said. Darn. The love of that family. How do you get that kind of love? How do you get that kind of connection? Where does that come from? You know, there's, there's a certain amount of, of envy in his voice as he was saying it because he's he just imagining that kind of connection. How do we get that? And see, the truth is, we only get it from experiencing connection. Only when we experience connection can we know that we're worthy of connection. How can we imagine it on a continuum, that we're good enough? But when someone accepts us, when we risk letting them see who we really are, move past the shame that keeps that concealed, keeps us in a defensive crouch, we risk opening up, and they actually accept us. You know, this is the power of the fifth step in the 12 steps. In the fourth step, you make your moral inventory, right? All the things that you don't like about yourself that you know are wrong about yourself on some sort of continua. In the fifth step, you tell someone else about it. And then you're bringing all this stuff up, and you think, as soon as they hear this, they're going to run screaming from the room. And they say, oh, really? That's nothing. Let me tell you about my story. <laughs> it's almost like comparing scars, you know? Ah, that's nothing. Why do you see this one over here? And we realize we were carrying all this around for this long? For what? We're still acceptable? See, this is the thing. Confession used to do that for us, where we actually confessed our sins to another person kind of got mucked up in the tradition, but it was there, and it was there for a reason. It was like the ritual of that fifth step, because once we tell somebody else and they still accept us, once we let someone see us and they still accept us, then we understand in a way that we can never, ever conjure up ourselves that we are worthy of connection.
Psalm 38, I'm sorry, Psalm 34, verse 8. Love this verse. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. See, this is where the Hebrews are such geniuses, you know. The Hebrews are so embedded in this life, in the physicality of this life, in immersing themselves in this life, that it's not about heady abstractions for them. It's not about anything that stays at arm's length. You want to know that the Lord is good? Taste and see that the Lord is good. you got to actually put this thing in your mouth about the most vulnerable thing that you can do. You know, what do you agree to eat? <laughs> I mean, this is a big deal because the wrong thing can kill you or it can taste really bad. This is the most intimate place, really, when you think about it. Our mouths taste. Are you willing, are you ready to move in that risky direction, to bring something so intimately into yourself? We're just talking about communion. Jesus is talking about communion. You take it into yourself. You actually taste it. You ingest it. If you want to know that the Lord is good, you cannot do it from across the parking lot. You cannot do it through the vehicle of your mind. You cannot do it at arm's length. You have to taste it. You have to be right there. You have to be intimate. This is why Jesus says, don't judge. Don't keep things in boxes. Don't deal with the boxes that fit neatly into these categories in your mind so that you're really only dealing with your own mind and never with what's really out there. You need to be able to break through. Get rid of the boxes. Don't impose any more boxes. Because when you do, you can no longer taste and see that the moment is good. You can no longer taste and see that the connection is really there. Jesus says, love your enemy. What is that all about? It's taking people out of the boxes in which you placed them so that you can see them again. You know? Take them out of the box. You've got them in a box that puts them at odds with yourself, that keeps them at arm's length. Take them out of the box so that you can see them again. You can taste and see that maybe something is good. Maybe something has changed that you weren't aware of. He says, pick up your cross daily, daily, and follow me. Not just once, but daily. What does he say in there? Are you willing to be vulnerable every single day? Are you willing to be hurt if that's what it takes to find out if there's a connection that's possible in this particular moment, are you willing to do that? You see, it's all about risk. The action is the only way that we will know that the grace is true, that it's unmerited favor, that it's unconditional love. But we have to risk something to find out because if we do the action defended, if we continue to conceal who we are, so that we won't get hurt, we'll never know the connection that's available on the other side. It's all about risk. Jesus is pushing us to risk vulnerability in order to experience the grace in the connection. Jesus is always willing to do that. Read the Gospels again. Read what he does. He's always moving in a vulnerable way. Toward the end of his ministry, when things were getting really hot with the authorities, every time he chose to go back to Jerusalem, what did his disciples say? No, don't do it. It's too risky. You know, 
the second to the last, when he goes back to, to uh, Jerusalem to raise Lazarus from the dead, you know, one of the disciples says, okay, well, we might as well go and die with him then because that's what's going to happen here. And then the last time when he does it, it actually does kill him. But the point is he never backed down. He and Tom Petty, right? Never backed down. I know that was a little sacrilegious. I'm sorry. He was willing to risk his vulnerability. He was willing to put himself in a vulnerable and risky position because that's where the connection lay. If he wouldn't go there, he wouldn't have the opportunity to do the things that he did, to connect in the way that he connected. And he was teaching that to his followers as well. In Luke 9, he sends them out in his power to, to just go throughout the, the countryside and to heal and teach and do the things he did. And what did he tell them? He said, take nothing for your journey. You know, don't take a staff, don't take a bag, don't take any bread, don't take money, don't take a spare coat even. Take nothing. Just show up. You see what he's teaching them to do? Show up in vulnerability. Show up undefended. Show up in this risky state and just see what happens. Trying to tell us to show up without expectation, without biases, to be present, to see what happens when all of that takes place. But all of Jesus' action and all of Jesus' teaching is really only half the story. Why would Jesus at John 14 say that these things that you see me do, you will do, and greater things than these? What's that all about? Is that just, we want to go right to the miracles? Are we going to be able to walk on water and raise people from the dead? You know, we always want to go there to the spectacular things. But to follow Jesus is to do what Jesus did. And that's what he told us over and over again. If you really will follow my lead, if you really will do what I do, then you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. What he's asking us to do, what he's showing us to do, what he's teaching us to do, is to follow vulnerable action. Because only vulnerable action convicts and convinces us of grace, of absolute, unmerited, unconditional favor and love. And it does that by bringing us to the connection of grace in our relationships, our day-to-day relationships. This is a conviction that takes us out of the continuum, and it's a conviction that can't be approached from within a continuum. We have to get out experiencing the grace is the only way to be convinced of the grace and the worthiness. And I know that sounds like a catch-22, but it's not. Experience the grace is in a way that we may not think. And this is why Jesus is so big on loving the enemy. Why is loving the enemy so critically important to Jesus' idea of love? Why is it so important for us to cross safe boundaries into this risky love? Why is it important for us to cross the boundaries for him, for a tax collector, to connect with a tax collector or a prostitute, a Samaritan or a Roman, any of these people who stood wildly outside of the law? See, for a good Jew, it was only safe to deal with those who stood inside the law. To touch anyone outside the law was to make yourself ritually unclean. 
It was to create suspect about yourself, right? Why was it so important to do that? Simply because any love that you showed to those people, they didn't deserve. What love did the Romans deserve from the Jews with all that they had done to them? With the enmity between Samaritans and Jews, what had either group done to deserve the love of the other side? And those who were constantly breaking the law or collaborating with the Romans, what love did they deserve? But to cross that boundary, to give a love that had not been earned and that actually had been fought against, you see, this is how it works. All the teaching, all the scripture, all the modeling that we get within our faith, it's like training for a skydive. You spend eight hours on the ground training, learning everything that you can about skydiving. But all that training can do is take you to a door, an open door, two miles above the ground. And it's your choice whether you're going to jump. The training got you to the door, but you will still know nothing about skydiving. And you will not be convinced of the grace of the parachute until you jump. The training takes you to the door. Jesus is taking us to the door of a person who does not deserve, has not earned our love, our consideration, our respect, our compassion. But will we give it? That's the question. Will we give it? Because the moment we give it away is the moment that we know that grace is possible. When we feel unmerited favor leaving our hearts, leaving our bodies, coming out of our mouths, turning into action for another person, is the moment that we realize that that is what has been infused in us. What has become our signature verse here? We love because he first loved us. As soon as we feel grace leaving us for someone who doesn't deserve it, we realize the only reason that we can do that is because our unmerited favor has preceded, infused us, empowered and enabled us to do the same. Can we do this? Yeah. But if we can, it's only because God has done it first. Now, does that mean that we have to go and and find the most horrible person on the street and find some way to love them? No, we can start small. It's okay. You know, we can place a small bet on on the poker table. We don't have to go all in at the very beginning. Maybe you start just by letting that driver in the lane in front of you who didn't deserve it because they came up on the shoulder the whole way while you were waiting in line and now they're sitting there with their blinker on. They don't deserve to get in front of you, do they? What if you do let them in? What about that know-it-all that is so absolutely annoying? How about if you allow them to have the last word? How about if you allow them to believe that they were actually right and you don't try to correct them? They didn't deserve that from you. They're annoying for crying out loud. What about that bad boss? What about the insufferable (laughs) mother-in-law? What about a Democrat or Republican, depending on what side of the fence you are on? 
Can you treat them with the utmost respect that they don't deserve, that they haven't earned from you? Is that even possible? And if you can do that, then maybe you can work yourself up to criminals and terrorists and war criminals and politicians and and those in the media that are so heinous that you can't even believe it. Maybe you can start to find a place there where you can give them some grace that that they do not deserve. Think of someone you don't respect. Think of someone that angers you, annoys you, offends you, either personal in your personal life or in the media, and imagine that they are right in front of you right now. They don't deserve you. They don't deserve your love. They don't deserve your grace. They don't deserve your unmerited favor. They haven't earned it. But what would change in your heart if you gave it anyway? See, everything changes at a moment like that. You have popped off the continuum. You are in sacred space. You're in liminal space. Take off your shoes. It's holy space at the moment like that. At a moment like that, the impossible suddenly becomes possible. Even something as impossible as amazing grace. Let's pray. Father, your grace is amazing. Your grace is inconceivable. Your grace appears impossible. It even appears unjust to our minds on the continuum. Help us to use these tools of continuum and categorical thinking to help us to transcend them, to start to see life as you do, above and beyond all these ways of thinking about them. Help us to be willing to risk something to find the connection that will prove to us that your grace is real. Your grace is the foundation of everything that we see and everything that we live and everything we love. We need to know that, Lord. Help us to find the strength to move in the direction that will take us to that place, that holy place. Father, once again, you've preceded us wherever we can possibly go, and your love is always there and available. Thank you, Lord. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.